Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Arc's FYI podcast. My name is Yassine. I cover cryptocurrencies at Arc Invest, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Twitter Nim Hasu. Now, if you're in the Bitcoin crypto Twitter weeds, you might recognize Hasu from his Evil Morty profile photo. If not, Hasu is someone I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the last few years through Twitter and a lot of the research he's published. So welcome, Hasu. It's, it's great to have you. Hi, Yassin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm an uh, independent crypto researcher. I'm passionate about the idea of non-sovereign money. So money and finance are spaces that historically have huge barriers to entry and have largely been protected from disruption. And cryptocurrency seems to be able to exist outside of the curfew of government regulation, at least for now. And I see some potential there to break this market open. And I'm extremely curious to see what the market will do with money and finance if it gets the opportunity through cryptocurrency. You also were a, a professional poker player as well. I think that there's a lot of like your fascination in game theory in particular, I think has translated well to you falling into the crypto rabbit hole. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's right. Great. So before we talk about Bitcoin, although in some capacity it does relate to Bitcoin, I, I do want to spend a few minutes just recognizing how how revolutionary our ability to disseminate information has become since the internet. Here we are, halfway across the world from each other, me not really knowing nor needing to know where you live, me being initially drawn to your ideas and the thoughts that you've been able to share with thousands of people, all under a pseudonymous Twitter account. And, and you're one of the first uh, pseudonymous Twitter accounts that we've had on this podcast. And I personally have become kind of increasingly fascinated by this sort of phenomenon, which I think is, is best explained by observing what's happened to the access of information pre and post internet. And I'm sure you have thoughts on this as well, but it really comes down to this idea that, you know, before the internet, information was scarce and barriers to access information were high. And so this monopoly on information kind of created this, this authority where, you know, sellers had more info than buyers. You had kind of professors that had access to private libraries. And there were really just a handful of informational sources that people turned to. You know, you had your trusted newspapers, your trusted TV channels, your trusted institutions. And so with that, there wasn't really a need for any accountability from these institutions, right? The information asymmetry kind of made it easier to create and control narratives. And then none of those narratives were really questioned. And then along came the internet 
and social media, and I, I would say Twitter is a large function of that as well, which, which really just completely destroyed this monopoly on information. We've witnessed the shift from information scarcity to information abundance, where now we're armed with kind of orders of magnitude more information today than we could have ever imagined a few decades ago. And, and this has led to this, this massive power inversion, which kind of ties into why I'm, I think that this is such a relevant conversation, in particular when it comes to kind of identity and, and pseudonymity. So if you want to speak a little bit, I, I think about the, your ability to create a name for yourself in a pseudonymous way on Twitter and your experience in doing that purely on a meritocratic basis. I'd be curious to get your thoughts as a kind of a living example of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of fascinated that this works. But in a sense, we, I mean, you're, you're my age pretty much, and we have both grown up with this. I have played video games all my life, and it was the most natural thing to create a pseudonym, not use your real name online, and also slip in and out of different identities if you want. I never saw the need to use my real name online because you get all the benefits from having a reputation, making friends, uh, having interaction with uh, other people just by using a pseudonym as well. But you do protect your real-life identity. In today's times, it's a growing concern, and I think more people wish they had stayed pseudonymous instead of revealing too much of their private information online. Right. It's kind of like names and like credentials almost seem no longer necessary in a free market of ideas. I think now really the only way, in addition to protecting yourself, like the only way to be completely honest is I think by being anonymous. If you strip identity out of the equation, then every idea is basically dissected as a standalone idea instead of kind of weighed down or supported by kind of an identity that was formed by your past decisions. And so then every single claim basically needs to fall back on this market of ideas. And so if anything, I think, especially in the context of bringing about and shedding light on interesting ideas, like the purest expression of an idea meritocracy is, I think, complete pseudonymity. And so that's, I think, part of the beauty of Twitter. I think it really is this expression of the internet and an embodiment of a peer-to-peer -peer idea meritocracy uh, that I don't think we necessarily had pre-internet. But anyways, this was just an aside, me rambling. <laughs> if you are interested in learning more about that, I, I would recommend reading uh, David Perel's. He has a blog, What the Hell is Going On? And then a, a book called Revolts of the Public. And then anything that, that Balaji Srinivasan has to say about identity, I think are, are all really interesting resources to further dive into this rabbit hole. All right, now on to Bitcoin. I know, Hasu, you've, you've recently fell down the Bitcoin security model rabbit hole. I think that was really initially you, you had published a, a long form piece on Bitcoin security model in particular that a lot of people appreciated, but others found to be very kind of controversial. And, and I think I, I want to spend kind of this episode diving into your thoughts about Bitcoin security model. I would say even the conclusions that you've drawn since writing the piece and really just have an open discussion that will encourage further areas of research. As we know, Bitcoin security model is a pretty hotly debated topic. Nick Carter has, a, has an interesting claim that you know some Bitcoiners are really allergic to contemplating Bitcoin security, naively believing it to be perfect. And I think that you know, regardless of, of whether or not you think 
Bitcoin is secure, it's worth discussing and at the very least acknowledging that Bitcoin security model will change in a post-issuance era, which we'll get into further. It would really just be a good starting point in just discussing if you can discuss the, the security principles of Bitcoin, really around why Bitcoin needs and has introduced this concept of mining and the rationale and intention behind Satoshi Nakamoto's design choices and all of this. Satoshi wanted Bitcoin to have certain properties and he, he set out to design a system that satisfies these goals in a stable and sustainable way. And he, he wanted to be precise, he wanted to build a digital cash system that is censorship resistant, permissionless, that is inflation resistant, and that is trustless. A cash system basically answers the question of who owns what when, and it lets users submit and receive updates to that state, to that system. And we can dive a little bit into the mechanisms that he used to get there. And then we will see what happens to if individual mechanisms change for whatever reason, what it make, means for the security of the system as a whole. Yeah, yeah, if you can definitely dive into what we like to refer to as kind of cryptographic primitives that I would say lay the foundation of ownership in these distributed systems more broadly, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah. So the first part of the question, who owns what, when Satoshi solved with asymmetric public key cryptography with that established the concept of digital property rights. This works because all coins are controlled by private keys. Only the owner of a private key can spend the respective coin and others in the network can also verify that the private key was used to spend a particular coin before they accept it as payment. But the second half, the when, is a lot more tricky. So you need to establish an order of transactions if you want to prevent people from spending the same coin multiple times to different parties. You could easily do this with a central server, but Satoshi, he wanted to avoid that. And I quote him, Governments are good at cutting off the heads of centrally controlled networks like Napster, but pure peer-to-peer -peer networks like Nutella and Tor seem to be holding their own. So he concluded that any cash system that is censorship resistant in the long term must be a distributed network. And that kind of goes back to, to the idea, I would say, around like what Bitcoin's fundamental innovation is, right? It's it's the ability to coordinate this trust and, and facilitate, in this case, the transfer of ownership and value without relying on a centralized authority, which kind of historically has been a, a longstanding problem. So kind of eliminating that trusted third party is foundational to what makes Bitcoin so innovative. 100%, yeah. The problem, however, was that this problem was entirely unsolved before Bitcoin came around, right? timestamping in a distributed way. So intuition would say, if you're a node in the network and you see a transaction, then you see that transaction as valid and you see another transaction later that spends the same coin, you just see it as invalid. But in a distributed system, there's actually no such thing as a globally consistent first and second. What one node sees first, another might see second because of message delays and the inability of nodes to communicate with each other and establish who saw what first, right? Because you have no way to know that a message has even been received. So Satoshi needed a mechanism to come for all nodes in the network to come to agreement about which transaction came first. And it doesn't matter which we put first and which we put second, as long as we all agree. That's uh, why Satoshi invented the distributed timestamping server that is uh, proof of work mining. Right. So th this seems to kind of bring up a more generic 
kind of area of interest and research around distributed systems more more holistically, where it's this idea of like, how do these quote unquote nodes or, or individual network participants come to agree on a, a single global state? And how do you do that without having kind of this centralized enforcer? And so the idea of proof of work where trustworthiness is then protected by computation is that primary enabler in Bitcoin system. So I'd actually be very interested if you can kind of expand on, on the role that nodes specifically play in the Bitcoin network to provide further context as to reaching this global state, that, that'd be very helpful. Oh yeah, well, we can talk about the roles of both nodes and miners. So in Bitcoin's consensus algorithm, any node can vote for, for state updates. That means they can collect transactions from different people in the network and collect them in a block and append that block to the blockchain. And nodes that participate in this process of making state updates, we call them miners. Okay, But they can only include transactions in blocks that are actually seen as valid by the other nodes in the network. So there's a constant process of verification going on. They publish these blocks, but other nodes, they will only recognize them as valid blocks if they satisfy the so-called validity rules. Those are just cryptographic checks that miners didn't, didn't spend a coin that has already been spent or that they don't forge a signature or that they don't give themselves any money, right? That they are not supposed to and, and so on. And uh, also that a certain amount uh, of work has been expended on making that block. And that actually works as follows. So miners can actually vote for state updates and their vote, voting power is based on computational power. For these kind of votes, they get paid in the native unit, which is Bitcoin. In practice, the mechanism works a bit more like a lottery. So there's one leader. One leader is chosen randomly for each block based on their share of the voting power. And when a new block is published, then other nodes automatically adopt it. And they also automatically follow the state that has the most votes behind it. They always follow the, the version of the blockchain that was the most costly to produce. Got it. So can you further kind of expand on, on this idea of the difference between, let's say, kind of a full node that doesn't contribute any computational power and then, and then a miner. I say this particularly because there's an often ongoing debate around kind of who controls Bitcoin and what is kind of Bitcoin's security model. Is there a single point of failure or are there enough distributed stakeholders such that there's constantly checks and balances? What exactly do nodes that aren't miners, what kind of power, if any, do they have over the global state consensus? This goes basically into the different ways that you can connect to the Bitcoin network and the different the trust assumptions that go along with that. If you actually want to connect to the Bitcoin network, be an actual member of the network, then you need to run a full node. And that's basically your portal, your interface to the network. There are other ways to basically indirectly connect to the network. So an SPV client, or also called a light node, it basically connects to someone else's full node or several full nodes of other people and are fed selective information by these nodes. And a bit more trust goes into that. Or you can just basically not even interface directly with a node, but just interface with the centralized service, let's say Coinbase. So Coinbase, of course, runs Bitcoin full nodes to make and, and receive transactions and so on. 
if you use Coinbase, then you're just very indirectly using a full node as well, but you have no insight into, yeah, I mean, you basically trust Coinbase to rep accurately report you the state of the Bitcoin network. Got it. So, so running a full node really serves the purpose uh, primarily for authenticating and verifying any incoming transactions instead of kind of having control over the actual consensus of the network. Yeah. So I, I would say that a full node has... So a full node is, is a, a node that has validated every transaction that has made it into the blockchain and can basically say that, yeah, any transaction in there satisfies the rules of Bitcoin. There's a local perspective on that and a, and a global perspective. So from a local perspective, as long as many other people use a full node, you get hardly any benefit from using a full node yourself. You could, you could also use an SPV node. An SPV node basically... It doesn't give you the entire block of transactions, so you, you don't verify that every transaction in the block is valid. It only validates, validates that the block header is valid. So the most important part here is that basically money has been expended to make this block and appended to the blockchain. It doesn't tell you if there are any invalid transactions in the block itself, but as long as other people run full nodes, this is not really a big concern because those other full nodes would just reject a block that has invalid transactions in them. Miners have absolutely no incentive to publish blocks that have invalid transactions because, well, the network would just ignore these blocks, right? Because they're invalid. <laughs> so the SPV nodes become a problem if everyone would use them because then, well, the only people who pretty much check for validity would be the full nodes and everyone else would trust them. Right. And, and that's why I, I would say a, a lot of people kind of encourage Bitcoin users to, to run their own full nodes to, to kind of distribute that potential risk of everyone just running light nodes. And so I, I do want to go back to the mental model that you introduced of like miners voting power almost based on which is based on computational power or in kind of Bitcoin terminology, hash rate, it seems like what you've introduced is really like this interesting incentive mechanism, like this kind of sort of feedback loop. You have this, I have this diagram in front of me, which, which explains it quite clearly, but it's this idea that now you have this, this native unit, which is Bitcoin that's embedded into the system that miners get paid to vote, which is issued via a block reward which that itself is incentive for miners to then establish a stable consensus. And by establishing a stable consensus, you then have kind of usefulness to users of the Bitcoin network. And in turn, by being useful to users, that is what gives value to this native unit and so on and so forth. Yeah. If, if you want to expand on that. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's a great explanation. Yeah. Great. Uh, so I think to, to that point, and, and, and the fact that we've kind of discussed what nodes do and, and the purpose that they serve, what exactly can miners do? What role do they have in the rules of the network? It's easier to first say what they can't do. So miners, as we, as we established, they, they can't do anything that breaks the validity rules in the network. They can't mint any money out of schedule. They can't spend any coins without a valid signature. They can't any make any, publish any blocks or other nodes won't depend any blocks that don't have sufficient work or quote-unquote voting power behind it and so on. But they can't change anything that's related to the time ordering of transactions. I'll give you two examples. They can rewrite the chain, for example, to 
basically double spend. That means they spend money and then they unspend the transaction and then they have the good and the money. Or they can just undermine consensus stability by rewriting the blockchain frequently. They can also stop writing the blockchain completely, right? So they can either send, this would be called censorship. So they can either censor individual groups of users or transactions, or they can just censor the network as a whole, which I, I would describe as a denial of service attack. Even though we have the full nodes in the network who check for validity always, miners can still do a lot of bad if they want to, right? They could, in theory, if you think about it, they could rewrite the entire blockchain all the way back to the Genesis block. They can, they can undo everything that has ever happened in Bitcoin. And they can also stop anything from ever happening again in Bitcoin. Okay, so you, you, caveated, you caveated all that with saying if they want to. Mm -hmm. Why haven't they exactly done that? So why, why haven't we kind of seen these sorts of attacks um, whether it be censoring transactions or double spending, I would say particularly in Bitcoin, uh, we may see we may have seen them in other other kind of crypto networks. But w why exactly haven't we seen them on Bitcoin? A Bitcoin incentivizes miners with rewards and punishment to do what the users want. They actually start out with punishment just to get any voting power at all. So they they first need to buy a lot of hardware and set that all up and get access to cheap electricity, and so on. And then they get paid a reward if they find any blocks, but also only if they converge with other miners and nodes. So if they make blocks that other miners or nodes are not willing to accept, then they also don't get paid a reward. Further, the market value of that reward is tied to the health of the Bitcoin network, at least to a degree, right? So easy example would be if miners just destroyed Bitcoin and it's, it's gone, yeah, then there's no Bitcoin unit anymore either. So the, the basically BTC loses all its value and miners are getting paid in BTC. So they basically lose all their investment. The whole balance sheet of miners is tied to the health of the network because of the because the market value of the reward is tied to the network. If users lose faith, then uh, lose faith in the network, then the miners just lose their entire investment. And this also brings us to uh, like miners, uh, uh, sorry, users. This has been discussed like a few times in Bitcoin. So especially earlier when like the largest mining company, Bitmain, was seen as more hostile to the network, that users have a sort of nuclear option available, which is changing the proof of work function. Basically, all the mining equipment out there, there would, with one stroke of the pen, if you were, would be wiped out, right? It would not be useful to mine. Bitcoin anymore. I think that you bring up a broader point as well, in particular, this idea that if, if users lose faith, then miners lose their investment because the market value of the reward, which is Bitcoin, is effectively tied to the health of this network. Um, and, and so, you know, particularly in the context of, I, I would say, hardware in these crypto networks, you know, there's this ongoing debate around whether networks should encourage or deter non-repurposable hardware or ASICs. And so in this example, and, and I think to further answer the question, it kind of becomes clear why ASIC resistance may hurt network security. Um, since it ultimately reduces minor punishment. Um, so the idea that you have this hardware that basically is exclusively used to 
mine a specific asset on a specific network, then it makes it much more expensive to attack as it disincentivizes miners who have allocated hundreds of millions of dollars of upfront costs in the form of hardware that serves just this single purpose. And so if mining can actually be done with commodity hardware or, or like g- general purpose hardware, then you have this decoupling between the health of the network and minor investments. You wrote a recent piece on this, if you want to expand on that, around the the 51% attack that we saw with Vertcoin that actually alludes to this idea of ASICs really creating a form of mutually assured destruction, where if you're going to destroy the network, you're going to have to also destroy the hardware you dedicated to supporting the network in the first place. With a network like Vertcoin, we saw that because of the kind of general purpose hardware, miners had less of a doubt in attempting to double spend the problem than had they had to commit to these non-repurposable hardware. Oh yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that non-repurposable hardware makes networks more secure because it introduces this, this form of mutually assured destruction, yeah. Yeah, I do want to say that like I, I like your framing. I recently reread your post, how ASICs represent the present value of future cash flows from the particular asset mining, which means that if you destroy the network, then the price basically tends to zero because I would say price is largely a function of the network's usability, along with the, then the attacker who has lost not only the future revenues in mining that asset, but the fixed costs of the hardware itself. So that's a really interesting framing that I think a lot of people can can benefit from in understanding why ASICs are so important. As we provide this backdrop, if you could kind of explain what exactly secures Bitcoin, and it's hard to come up with like a, a definitive single answer, but it's, I, I would imagine, a wide array of components that contribute to this security. I think it would be very helpful to, to get your take on what you think secures Bitcoin. Yeah, so I, I think Bitcoin is, if I have to answer, it's, it's secured by a mix of cryptography plus economic incentives. Economic incentives meaning reward and punishment. The cryptography, it sort of works on its own. So it, it needs occasional maintenance. Maybe it needs to be replaced by like more quantum resistant uh, algorithms, whatnot, by the developers, but it largely just works. And we can largely expect it to work in 50 years from now as well. And even if it doesn't, then just the, the kind of research that goes into cryptographic primitives, it's, it's always ongoing and it's sort of easy to swap out one cryptographic function against another, right? But the economic incentive, it must be actively funded by users. So I would say this is uh, a, a lot more shaky there. That makes sense. Great. So let, I want to now jump into the, the question that everyone loves to hate. And it's, is it a problem that the block reward is going to decrease over time? Are, are there changes in economic incentives as a function of this decreasing block reward? So to to provide a little bit of context for the audience, because we didn't touch on this, Bitcoin's monetary policy is is disinflationary. It's it's capped at 21 million units. The minor reward that you, Hasu, referred to is really also a Bitcoin supply issuance valve, right? And so that gets cut in half every four years until it eventually tails off to zero. What this means is that minor revenue or quote unquote security spend which is now currently a function of 
transaction fees and block rewards, with 97% of that consisting of block rewards, will transition into exclusively being a function of transaction fees as this block reward subsides. The thought is that there will eventually be enough demand to settle transactions at the base layer that will be attractive enough to develop some sort of fee market that remains that in the best interest of miners to continue to act honestly. And so, you know, if we look at it today where fees kind of consist of a, a single percentage points of total miner revenue, there is this question of whether or not there are going to be sufficient uh, a sufficient enough fee market to continue to incentivize miners to act honestly. Now, b- before I get into it and I, and I, and I ask your thoughts, this is like a, a topic that a lot of people don't like to discuss. I do think I have a theory as to why there's so much pushback. I, th- I think on one end, you see it because a lot of, I would call them Bitcoin haters, they love using this as a, as a straw man. Where, well, they'll just say, oh, well, Bitcoin is just, it's just broken. It's just broken because you know, there's not going to be a fee market. And then on the other hand, you have kind of these Bitcoin hyper maximalists that then just refuse to entertain the straw man because it goes back to, okay, these people have no credibility. They hate Bitcoin. So why should I even listen to them? And so it almost seems like we're stuck in this stalemate in between these two extremities, which understandably don't want to have any part in each other's discussions. But then it becomes really hard to have a healthy and open dialogue about anything in between. And again, this goes back to like why I think pseudonymity is just so powerful. It's because you're not pointing fingers based on like what you represent as as a single individual and the identity that you embody. It's really just purely based on your ideas. So that was a that was a long winded uh, kind of preface and backdrop. But I think it's important given you know now we're going to kind of dive into what many believe to be controversial. I think that's a very sharp observation. So minus can do bad stuff if they want to, okay? Anyone can be a miner. So anyone can do bad stuff. And it doesn't matter if we think the current miners are nice, okay? So if, if not being nice pays better, then the other miners will enter who are not nice and make more money. And they will replace the existing miners because they're more profitable in the long run. So whenever you hear Bitcoin miners can do X, Y, Z, then really, in my opinion, you better replace it with anyone can. Because anyone might not care about Bitcoin for altruistic reasons. And the solution to that problem is you incentivize the majority of hash rate to be honest. Got it. Before you, before you continue uh, explaining what that is, I'm going to personally push back on the, this idea uh, that anyone can. I think that w- one of the biggest things that you know, people who do say anyone can is also, I would say, around the feasibility of this attack. Do you mean by anyone who is kind of financially equipped to attack? What's your definition of anyone? There is a distinction between literally anyone on the street can go and attack Bitcoin and anyone who, has, who is financially motivated and has the financial capacity can And I would even say to a certain extent, even if you do have the financial capacity, anyone who has the means to actually deploy the necessary physical resources, whether that be around kind of the liquidity of of sourcing hardware, access to cheap electricity, you know, so, so is the idea of anyone perhaps a bit overly simplistic? 
Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, that we can clarify this actually. So yeah, I, I don't mean everyone could do this, right? So anyone to me means it's impossible to disprove that there's someone out there who will do this. And in my opinion, it doesn't matter that it costs a lot of money or it, it requires coordination between several people. I think the free market, if it's good at, at one thing, it's extremely good at making the worst case happen. So if there's, if there's a way to profit from something, then it really encourages cooperation to make that thing happen. And that's why I think if it's profitable to be a Bitcoin miner and follow a certain mining strategy, even if that strategy breaks the protocol, then in the long run, we will probably see that happen. Yeah. Do you think that there's a difference between financially more profitable and like practically feasible in terms of like the actual potential deployment? of such an attack yeah i think the the most or the actors you would most look at to execute such an attack would probably be state level actors in my opinion who both have who both have the practical as well as the financial capabilities to pull this off and they also have the biggest incentive to do it because they are the incumbents in the existing monetary and financial system. So let's go back to, to your point about what you think the solution is, the idea to incentivize the majority of hash rate, to be honest. This is a common source of confusion. So if you want to clarify that, I think that'd be really helpful for the audience. I think most people misunderstand a, a very crucial part of Bitcoin's design and they just say Bitcoin is secure, assuming it has an honest majority. This is called the honest majority assumption. But Satoshi didn't really assume Bitcoin for Bitcoin to have an honest majority. He only assumed that miners act rationally, that they maximize their own self-interest. He wrote in the white paper, and I quote, the incentive, this is the block award, may help encourage nodes to stay honest. If a greedy attacker is able to assemble more CPU power than all the honest nodes, he would have to choose between using it to defraud people by stealing back his payments or using it to generate new coins. He ought to find it more profitable to play by the rules, such rules that favor him with more new coins than everyone else combined, than to undermine the system and the validity of his own wealth. And I think this quote, it just so perfectly sums up everything that we talked about, right? You do have someone who controls the majority of hash power. It doesn't matter whether it's one guy or whether it's 10 guys who could, in theory, collude with each other. And the only way to you prevent that hash power majority from doing something bad is to make it more profitable for that majority to be honest. Right? Looking at the current state of Bitcoin, when does this, this idea become a concern then? The only reason this might become a concern eventually is because the incentive for miners to mine honestly has to match the importance of the system. In other words, as the value held in, in the Bitcoin system grows, so should the money that is dedicated to defending that system. You don't think it's just a function of whether miners just are profitable? Like it's it, you look at profitability levels rather than kind of proportional growth of the network to the incentive to actually remain honest? So miners don't just have two options, right? So they, in a very simplistic view, you would say they, they can either shut off and leave or they can mine honestly and extend the already heaviest chain and process all user transactions. In practice, as we discussed, they have a lot more options. They can mine on any previous block, which is rewriting the chain, or they can mine more blocks but not put any transactions in them, which is 
censorship. And it depends on their ability to monetize these attacks if we would see them, right? If these attacks can be monetized and they are more valuable than extending the heaviest chain, then yeah, I, I do think that miners will choose them. That doesn't necessarily mean that the current miners will. It's very crucial, right? So as long as anyone can do it, it can make more profit than, than is possible than by honestly mining, then I think it, it will happen just because it's able to, uh, like it's, it's, it is in theory absolutely possible to be uh, anonymous as a miner. That's a, a crucial part of the system. There's no way to hold miners accountable in, in any other way. Mm-hmm. Do you think that like there's perhaps an intangible risk factor that like the theory does not necessarily account for? I say this more in the context of, I would say, even existing miners, because that is where it's like, is it worth the potential risk of completely destroying the Bitcoin network, which for years I've been net long and have dedicated significant resources that if it were to be destroyed based on a potentially profitable attack, then I have to be willing to kind of forego and be willing to suck up the upfront costs that I've contributed prior to mining. Is it kind of, is there kind of just this almost Occam's razor of, I'm not going to think about trying to attack Bitcoin because I'm mining on profitably already as an honest participant? I would say today, yes, absolutely. And then explains really well why we haven't seen any attacks on Bitcoin. Okay. But I like to look at basically the security budget in relation to the network value, the network value being a kind of proxy for how much money miners can make from destroying the system or, or just at least damaging it. Yeah, it really, it, it comes down to a risk, uh, to, to like a cost benefit calculation. So if an attacker has to burn through 2% of the network value, to attack Bitcoin. This is, and this is like a worst case assumption from the eyes of the miner, right? So if his entire hardware becomes worthless, I would put that figure today at, well, let's say maybe three to 5%, yeah? So would someone destroy three to 5% of Bitcoin's network value to destroy Bitcoin? Probably not, right? And empirically not, we haven't seen it. Would someone destroy 1%? Maybe. Would someone do it for 0.1%? I can't say no, right? It's uh, we don't know, right? There's a, just a lot of subjectivity now, now introduced into the equation. I feel like this also kind of opens up a different conversation around, you know, some people may actually, and and we could, and and I, I see there's a valid argument where are we potentially overpaying for security? Like, how do we actually measure what the precise or optimal security spend is. There there are questions around, are there security thresholds? Should it be a percentage of market cap? Should it be a percentage of transaction volume? Should it be a function of hash rate? In your estimation, do you think that these are kind of just heuristics that are going to remain just completely arbitrary? Or is there a way that we can find some sort of ground truth on what optimal security levels are? No, I think they will stay highly subjective. So we can probably empirically say that Bitcoin has uh, been overpaying for security, but this is due to the fact that the block subsidy serves uh, a dual purpose. The first being to distribute all the Bitcoins into circulation and acting as a sort of mint, right? So anyone can be a miner also means this comes back to Satoshi's property for Bitcoin to be inflation, inflation resistant in the sense that you can't, like someone has to mint new Bitcoin. Someone is the first to hold them. So there is Sany Rush, even in Bitcoin. But 
this idea that you have that anyone can be a mint, anyone can be a miner and get paid in Bitcoin means that you have free entry into the system. You have very, very steep competition between miners. And that's how Bitcoin minimizes the Senirage. So this is really the first, basically the first part of the block subsidy. And the second is to basically be the incentive or be part of the incentive for miners to create a stable consensus. Well, so some people argue that like subsidy actually doesn't really have anything to do with securing the network, that the idea of resisting censorship is, is actually just a consequence of transaction fees and that the only purpose is to rationally distribute units. And then as a function of that, a declining block subsidy shouldn't really matter because the real value of the reward should change as Bitcoin's price increases. And since miners are being paid in like Satoshis or these native units, then it's about kind of the purchasing power of what th that single unit provides more than it is kind of a decrease in, in the actual absolute number of those units. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, um, that's a complex question. So I, I would unpack it a bit. So first, I think that it's absolutely true that basically the revenue gained by a sensor decreases when the, the subsidy decreases. So censorship is more costly in a way in a fee-only market because only processing transactions creates any revenue for the miners, right? But I think what this argument misses is that basically the cost of censorship is also expressed by the market in a subsidy-only subsidy paradigm because the miners have all of their balance sheet tied to BTC. Anything that erodes confidence in the system would erode confidence in the value of the token and hence the value of the miner balance sheet. And I think it's, it's easy to imagine how, like if basically it becomes common knowledge that transactions are being censored in the Bitcoin network, that this was, would just completely erode confidence in the network and just uh, th thereby basically also this, yeah, it's the argument for like mutually assured destruction it definitely applies in that situation. So yeah, even in a subsidy-only paradigm, censorship can be very costly for miners. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, what exactly, if any, do you see the limitations uh, on how Bitcoin currently works then? Okay, yeah. I'd say the main problem with how it works currently is that the supply of the security incentive is derived by demand for priority in the block space market and not by demand for security itself. But if the block reward decreases, does this mean that, that, that users have less demand for security? No, it, it really doesn't, right? So we could easily get into a situation where, where people honestly ex express their preference to make transactions in the basically in the block space market, but security remains underfunded because the, the current mechanism that we employ is supposed to, it's only supposed to regulate priority between transactors. It's not supposed to sufficiently fund security. So what we really get into here is a, it's a, it's a tragedy of the commons situation. And I think that's where it's clear that security is really, is a, it's a common good, right? So let's say there's no transaction fees in the block and we are in a pure transaction fee only paradigm, right? So I can transact for free. So I can have a demand to transact, but I don't have to pay any fees, right? So will miners process my transaction? Probably not, right? So I need trans like and at the same time other people don't have an incentive to transact or they, they would like to transact but they can't 
there's no sufficient incentive. So they have to assume that their transactions just won't finalize. Right. This is also all under the assumption that kind of there isn't a, a significant transaction fee market that develops post the block reward, right? I think that that's kind of important to highlight where I don't think, and this is not what you're implying, but some, some who tend to make this argument try to decouple kind of transaction fees and price as kind of two uh, d distinct variables. But we've seen in the past that transaction fees have historically risen and fallen with price. And so if Bitcoin continues on its trajectory of, of providing kind of a mechanism by which users can store and transfer value and, and have full ownership over their wealth, you would imagine a, a scenario where, where like there will be enough transaction fees. And as such, kind of the, the tragedy of the commons is mitigated because people are willing to pay for that security whenever they make that transaction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think firstly, I think transaction fees and, and uh, the Bitcoin price are absolutely connected. But also, if the Bitcoin, like if the network value of BTC grows, then the security budget should grow along with it. So that already assumes that as the network value grows, so does basically the, the dollar value of the security budget. We acknowledge that not everyone agrees with that notion though, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. if there is a sufficient enough security threshold, mm -hmm. then you know security budget need not grow with network value. Ah, yes, so yeah. as long as profitability remains intact, like that's, that's another argument. And then obviously the counter to that is, well, if you, you can't assume kind of altruistic actors that if there is a mechanism by which they can squeeze out even greater profits, then they might. And their ability to squeeze out those greater profits increases as network value increases. And for that reason, you would want security budget to increase in tandem with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think those are, those are the two popular views. So the first one, it, it, it really sees basically a fixed cutoff for like a fixed security threshold, a fixed point of minor revenue, after which it basically doesn't matter how big the incentive to attack is. As long as the cost to attack is higher than a certain threshold, then we won't see any attacks in practice. And I mean, it's, it's logically clear that this is true, but only if the threshold is extremely large, right? So let's say you would need like a prohibitive amount, amount of electricity that's avail available in the world. If it's something that can be practically done, then I think we should be concerned that it might be done. Right. That makes sense. Then let's then ask that question that I think a lot of economic-minded Bitcoiners are, are thinking about. Let's pose this hypothetical where let's assume that you know, Bitcoin's price doesn't appreciate. Let's assume that you know, transactions are near zero. As a Bitcoiner, how do you think of possible countermeasures to the risk that this poses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we should, like we discussed some countermeasures in our paper, but we should also go ahead and say that we by no means claim that we understand this problem. So we, we think there is a problem. We don't know how it will play out. And we don't know, we don't claim to understand like all the possible solutions. So it's, it's really more our attempt to just open the conversation, get more people interested in this and just have a, like have more eyes on this because we deeply care about, about Bitcoin and want to make it sustainable. That being said, we try to lay out basically a framework for different ways of tackling this problem, assuming that we agree it, it is a problem. The first would look, it would just take this basically block space market as a way of funding security 
and try to improve the situation there. So the, basically, the, the block space market revenue is a, the result of supply and demand for block space. And so you can go about this from two ways. You can either increase the demand for block space or you can decrease the supply of block space and hope that the, basically the, the resulting revenue ends up higher than it would have otherwise. So you can increase demand for block space by, for example, adding second layers to Bitcoin that open the space of things that people can do with the system, that add new properties, basically. A good example for that would be the Lightning Network. Lightning Network transactions are basically instant and they are also more private and they are also they are still fairly trustless, right? And this is a big benefit of our base layer transactions and it just it opens like a whole new dimension of things that you can do with Bitcoin because previously it took on average around 10 minutes before you even had the first confirmation on your transaction. And now it's basically instant and immediately settled. You can also support more asset types on Bitcoin. You can use the chain as a security anchor for hash data. So something like open timestamps, for example, you would hash data that you have on your local computer and upload the hash to the, basically upload the, the Merkle tree to the Bitcoin blockchain to basically prove that this data has not been altered in any way, for example. So there are a lot of things you can do with hash data that you can put on the Bitcoin blockchain. And we can also just add more smart contract uh, capabilities to, to Bitcoin. For example, there are like several proposals right now to do this. For example, a new opcode that is, that is hopefully added to Bitcoin that would enable a new type of payment channel. From the other direction, we can lower the supply of block space. We can either just lower it manually, or we can also lower it automatically, but in a non-discretionary way. I would call this an adaptive block size. And the goal here is really to remove any excess capacity. So basically remove any block space that's not currently being used and try to target a supply that is always, that always undershoots the current demand to transact. And you can do this by just you keep the current block size limit intact to the upside. So it, it cannot go higher than it currently is because that limit is in place for very important reasons. But it can automatically adjust downward based on, let's say, a rolling average of recent transaction fees, basically how full blocks have been in the past. Yeah, I want to expand on, on, that, on that a little bit because I think adapt, adaptive block sizes to many seem like a, a good idea, to others seem like complete blasphemy. There's one like question around whether or not it's even possible to achieve this in an incentive compatible way. And then, and then to your point about kind of limiting the block size where these constraints on block size, they exist to allow validation by a sufficiently high percentage of users. And that then in turn is kind of how we're able to be quote unquote sufficiently uh, decentralized. All this to say that like these are obviously still kind of active areas of research and ones that ultimately uh, could play a role, but that we still don't have like the exact answer from an implementation standpoint yet. Is that safe to say? Yeah, for sure. I think that the, the adaptive block size idea, it doesn't really have any downsides. So it's absolutely true that it only helps in some situations. But uh, it also, it, it never really hurts, right? So there's no way to use it to break the system. It doesn't introduce, as far as I know, any basically disincentives to the system. So I would like to see it make it into the system at some point as a sort of, yeah, just a backup solution, right? So as a backstop for the block size, block space market. And speaking about the block size market, so that brings us to, to basically another way of going about this. And the block space market is, it currently 
or in the new paradigm, it, it basically has two functions, right? So A, it regulates priority between users who want to transact, but it also is supposed to pay for the incentive and right, for the sufficient funding for miners. And the reason that it might work, right? But it, it's then, but only because incidentally, the, the demand to transact is high enough. The reason for that is that it's really a mechanism that is not optimized to translate user demand for security into user funding of security. So the solution to that, a solution to that would be to make it excludable. So basically make it so that people cannot opt out of paying. And, uh, and these ideas are definitely highly controversial and they are unlikely, in my opinion, to ever make it into Bitcoin. But I think that non nonetheless, they have to be, um, we have to think about them um, just because they, they are like very practical um, solutions. And there's also a lot of research done on this type of problem, like this type of a tragedy of the commons in classical economics. So we know that these would work in theory. I think it acts as an important security guarantee to know that if worst comes to worst, we know some things that we can do that will definitely work, even if they basically break some things that people believe about Bitcoin today and people like about Bitcoin today. And the things that you can do are basically you can just extend the issuance schedule. So you just keep issuing more coins. And this is worthwhile to think about, in my opinion, because it really is, it's a coordination mechanism. It's a funding mechanism that serves exactly the goal that we talked about. It directly basically translates user demand for security into user supply of security in a highly scalable way because you basically, as a parameter of the system, you, you create this symmetry between network value and the minor incentive. Because if you say we issue 1% one, 1 new coins per year, then you now have a security ratio of at least 1%. So you guarantee that an attacker will have to burn at least 1% one, 1 of annual revenue. So that would be more than that in, in practice, right? Because he doesn't just have his mining equipment is worth more than one year of revenue in practice. And this, this just scales no matter how valuable the network is. If it gets really valuable, then the block subsidy is also really valuable. And if it's, if it goes down in price, then, then so does the security spend. So we can just, if we can hit like the right target there, then we know we will never overspent or underspent on security. I will say that I'm, I'm one of those who would push back on this on this option. Not so much because I think that like, you know, scarcity is Bitcoin's primary value proposition, but I think more so like it's predictability in monetary policy where we've now kind of had this shelling point where users are confident that the supply schedule will not change in any way. And people tend to almost use that as a very strong meme as to why Bitcoin's conservative decision-making is a feature and not a bug. I think that this, well, like in theory, and I know Peter Todd has spoken about this in the past as well. Like, I don't think that that would in the long run be to the benefit of Bitcoin or definitely not Bitcoin holders today in terms of like why they hold Bitcoin. So I would respond to things to that. So I think... It's very important to see Bitcoin from the like see Bitcoin as a holistic system. We can't uh, optimize any individual part of Bitcoin like the monetary policy if it 
if it sacrifices basically other areas of the system that make the whole more fragile and ultimately unworkable, right? So if people buy a store of value, I think that they don't care if the annual inflation is 0% or if it's 0.5%, they care way more if they basically about having certainty that Bitcoin is still around 50 years from now, 100 years from now, right? So I think this kind of sustainability is, is a really underappreciated and under-researched aspect of the system. And I hope it will receive more attention in the future. That's my first point. I just think that it's pretty binary in terms of like deciding to change monetary policy. Uh, and I also think that there are measures that will likely be taken before before like this becomes the only solution. I would say all this to kind of say that, yeah, there's the, there's one side of the camp that says, you know, I'd rather see Bitcoin fail than see kind of the inflation rate or the issuance rate change. I'm not a part of that camp, but I'm also one to believe that there will be tons of measures taken before that make it such that this never really becomes a question. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's my opinion. No, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, Bitcoin ultimately follows uh, basically the what the community wants. Right. But I, I would also point out that there, there's a significant amount of... The, the, the thinking on this issue is, is quite clouded, in my opinion. So and I'll give you an example of that. Basically, what what is inflation, right? So I think it's it's not useful to focus on inflation only in the sense of issuing new units, like it's inflation in the sense of expanding the money supply. It's also important to think about inflation in the sense of, well, basically the purchasing power of Bitcoin going down, the purchasing power of your, basically your share of all Bitcoins going down. That's, that's what really matters, right? And if you buy into the security model that we laid out that Bitcoin has to always incentivize an honest majority and that that's the first point and that the, and that also that incentive must grow in tandem with the network value. If you believe in those two things, then it's quite obvious that basically miners have to be paid with purchasing power somehow, right? And if, if miners are paid by the block space market at a rate of 1% per year, then this also means that the average Bitcoin user in turn loses 1% of purchasing power per year. So the Bitcoin system is not magically secured, right? It is secured by the hard purchasing power of its users. And we are only talking about ways to, to translate user demand for security into supply of security and in a basically in a way that is incentive compatible and sustainable in the long term. Yeah, I definitely see the rationale. So in the interest of time, do you want to touch on any additional countermeasures? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I see we are short on time, so we'll just go through them quickly now. So basically the new issuance, but keeping the, the 21 million cap intact would be called the merge. So instead of making new coins, you just subtract like a tax from everyone's existing coins. That's one way. And you can also crowdfund the reward, basically the minor incentives. So you have like, you do a crowdfunding contract and you hope that enough people chip into this. Of course, there are like big incentive problems with this. There are some way to fix some of them. And if you care to read more about uh, various ways to do crowdfunding, in a possibly more incentive compatible way, then I would say uh, check out our paper. 
because there has been something written, uh, not by us, but we have aggregated pretty much what others have written about it. And finally, we can try to decrease the incentive to attack. And that's a very interesting point, in my opinion. So you can really reduce the value from censorship and by making the system more private. If you have better privacy, it's, it's harder for miners to pick out individual users. They can only censor everyone or no one. So that's a big one. You can also lower the exit cost from the system. What is the benefit of that? It's easier for users to just leave the system and go to a competitor. Then basically, there's a much higher price impact, a much higher punishment for miners from misbehaving. Is that not counter to kind of the upfront investments that miners need to incur in things like non-repurposable hardware? Oh, no, I think it strengthens that, that part, right? Mm-hmm. Because just non-repurposable hardware becomes, or like the, this concept of mutually assured distraction becomes much stronger mm-hmm. when users basically, the more power users have over the network. If there's something that users don't like, and basically they are more eager to sell because there's a competitor available that does the same thing, then miners have to be, well, the the equilibrium is much more in favor of the users. And I think you see this in in every marketplace where users, uh, the consumers are more powerful, the more competition there is between producers. So this indicates that a flourishing space of competing cryptocurrencies is actually quite beneficial for security. You can actually, you can also uh, commit transactions to blocks. So that's a more technical thing, but uh, it it hints at a general concept because if you do that, then attackers can no longer replay transactions, meaning basically you can imagine this as they can only, if they rewrite the chain, they can only mine empty blocks. And this causes extra collateral damage in in the network. It affects more users. And if more users care, then it's easier to basically... A, you have more price impact, so more punishment for the attacker, but it's also easier to coordinate a response. So basically, you create a herd immunity, if you will. So you can't, miners can't pick on individual users as easily anymore. They can only pick on large groups of users. We can also improve the monitoring of the whole system. So we, it's easier for us to see when an attack is actually underway or when there might be an attack coming. And we can just generally improve education around the security model. Because Bitcoin has this very interesting dynamic where people who use Bitcoin wrong, quote unquote, for example, they by accepting large transactions with few confirmations, they actually make Bitcoin less secure for everyone else because they subsidize possible attacks. So these are just some ways of thinking about the problem. And some of them are very easy to integrate and very uncontroversial. They change pretty much nothing about how what we value in Bitcoin today. And others are really prohibitive and they either change things that are fundamental to Bitcoin or things that we at least believe are fundamental to Bitcoin, which may not be so fundamental at the end of the day. And how people see this can absolutely change over the course of a decade. We just want to encourage people to well get people interested in this problem and maybe, yeah, just... Um, generate some of their own thoughts and and join the discussion on that. Because in our opinion, this is the biggest source of uncertainty in Bitcoin's future. And if Bitcoin fails, if we read the history books in 50 years and Bitcoin has failed, then I think the most likely reason is this. Great. Well, I mean, this definitely opens the conversation. I always really, really enjoy speaking to you, Hasu, and reading about your ideas 
And I know that a lot of it is is not to fear monger or to put Bitcoin down. It's largely a function of your own intellectual curiosity and satisfying that. But then also because to your point, like this is a, a conversation regardless of, you know, whether you think Bitcoin is or isn't secure. It's like these are conversations that I think are are worth having because uh, they obviously kind of make you think and at least prepare you for what's to come. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people say that this is not something that we should discuss because even if it is an issue, it's an issue that, you know, we'll only see 20 years down the line, which which is true, but still is something that, you know, as young kind of intellectually curious people, we can't help but discuss. I would actually, I would slightly push back on that. Yeah. Because this could absolutely be a problem in okay. as little as 8 to 12 years. At that point, if transaction fees are not significantly higher than they are today, then the block subsidy, in my opinion, enters quite dangerous territory. And given how long it takes to change anything in Bitcoin, and this is a feature of the system, right? I think it, we are just on time and starting to think about some of these problems. Because we really don't want to be in a position where there is already a problem that requires an urgent solution because when we are in a hurry to fix these things then it's way easier to make a mistake or adopt a solution that is not perfect or do something without full community buy-in just because there is not enough time to create a consensus in such a large and diverse community okay so and this is but this is primarily under the framing that you know, Bitcoin needs to be secured by an X percentage of network value annually. Correct. Yeah. Like this, go, this is like under the kind of non-security threshold model. No, I would say so. Then the security threshold model is still in play, but not at this, not at these prices, right? So there are barely like a few billion dollars of money that an attacker would have to burn today to destroy Bitcoin or like not to destroy Bitcoin, but to attack Bitcoin and damage it. And I think we can, we can all agree that this is not the threshold, right? So. Yeah, of course, of course. But then there is the argument that the rate determining step is not measured at all in financial capital, but is, is at rather measured in kind of the feasibility. I look at this, for instance, more from, let's say, like I, I was doing a little bit of modeling around, okay, you know, if a nation state were to attempt to attack Bitcoin, kind of how much hardware would they need to buy? And is there a supply constraint on hardware given the illiquidity in secondary markets to do so? And so something as simple as like, okay, they would probably need to have a monopoly over TSMC to supply them with the necessary nodes, in which we historically know that Bitmain has been at the last uh, in the pecking order in getting access to these wafers. Like there's a question of $6 billion is obviously nothing, but the real kind of, I would say, less tangible and measurable part is actually doing this in a resource feasible manner. I'll finish by saying that you mentioned the idea of like miners can attack this anonymously. I'm curious if you think that kind of nation states are the most likely entities to be malicious and try to attack the network because it isn't to some degree in their best interest. Do you think that they would do this anonymously or that they would kind of go on like a very public facing attack mechanism, especially given that they would likely need to kind of shake the semiconductor industry to do this in the first place? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. 
to be honest, I, I don't know. There's a lot you can do just by threatening. That's true. That <laughs> That's, network, true. Right? So That's true. You can already discourage a lot of people just from using the Bitcoin network and yeah. really shaking its price by like if the US or China threatened that they would put a cap on it and they don't even have to do anything as long as that threat is sufficiently credible. If they want to do credible threats like that, then they probably have to go about like they, they would have to attack the network pub publicly just to prove their credibility for future attacks. So yeah, I think if it's if it's a profit driven attack, like if it's someone who who attacks the, the network for like immediate profit, I would say this is most likely to be done anonymously. And if it's if it's done just to make a point, for example, or to protect the interests of a nation state, then I, I would expect this to be done in a public way. Great. Well, this this was awesome, Hasu. Thank you so much for you know coming on the podcast. I'll leave you with any final words if if you have any. And then, of course, where, where people can find you. Thanks so much um, for listening. I really enjoyed thinking and talking about this. And I just, I just hope some people um, will also be interested in this. Meet me on Twitter, on our blog, uncommoncore.co or on Deribit Insights. Um, and let's talk about this. Let's see if we can figure it out. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.